Welcome to a Monday night edition of Tiski Sour. I'm back after, I have to say, the worst bout of flu I've ever had in my life. It did feel at times, I mean, I didn't really think I was going to die, but you've got that moment where you're so heavy you can't move and you're thinking, what is going on? I'm joined tonight by Ash as well, who, having spoken to earlier earlier today, also sounds a little bit worse for wear. How are you doing, Ash? I've got a brand new sexy voice, Michael. I thought you'd like it. I do love the husky voice that comes with being a little bit sick. Just keep the coughing to a minimum, please, Ash. The audience don't like that kind of thing. It makes them feel uncomfortable. I, I will. I will. Look, I've got, I've got this literally by my side to glug from. Should I start getting a bit coffee? So, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a drinking problem or a purple drank problem. I believe, as they say, it's just a regular degular cold. I think they um, took the codeine out of British cough syrup quite a long time ago. So maybe if you imported it from America, maybe you could do a purple drank thing. We've got a lot of political stories for you this evening, as usual. But before we get going, we have to mention yesterday's incredible World Cup final. Congratulations if you're watching this and you're Argentinian. If not, I presume um, that most of you enjoyed watching that yesterday. Uh, Let's take a look first, as I say, before we get going, at some footage taken by a cyclist in Buenos Aires. This was yesterday, of course. They captured the moment Gonzalo Montiel scored Argentina's winning penalty. Ash Sarkar, your thoughts on yesterday's game and the end of Qatar 2022? I've got to say, when I look at that footage of just everyone pouring out onto the street and celebrating, I actually feel really salty. I'm like, that should have been me. Mm. It should have been us having that feeling. And there's a part of me which finds it genuinely quite difficult to watch. I mean, in terms of the final itself, I genuinely think that is the best World Cup final I've certainly ever seen in my lifetime. And I would be really interested to hear if people remember seeing a better one. But the Mbappe versus Messi showdown was everything that I wanted it to be and more. I mean, you've got two players who are once in a generation talents facing off against each other. One, because it's truly his last chance to win a World Cup. It's got something of that Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, about it. You've got Mbappe, who's only 23 and already has a World Cup under his belt. But I think it's just such a dominating presence in European football. I don't think that you could say that there's anyone who's who's more of an attacking threat than him than in, in European football at the moment. So it was just absolutely spectacular. An incredible match to watch as a neutral like I genuinely had heart palpitations for a lot of it Um, in terms of reflecting on Qatar I mean I almost didn't quite know how to contextualize it within my own my own political understanding until our wonderful hyper-intelligent utterly charismatic colleague Stephen Methven put together a video for Mm -hmm. us which was looking at Qatar sports washing less through the idea of reputation laundering and more through the idea of 
a security strategy. So that video, which I believe came out the day of the final, really helped me understand just what this World Cup was intended to do for Qatar. And I think it really helped me develop my understanding of sports washing a hell of a lot more. You can find a link to that, explain it in the description below. I watched it before today's show. In between watching, um, I'm not even a football guy, but I've been watching Messi's best goals on YouTube. It's a story. The story is amazing. But do check out do check out Stephen's video. Link in the explainer below. In June, the European Court of Human Rights grounded a plane set to carry asylum seekers to Rwanda just minutes before the flight was due to take off. Now, eight of those on board that flight later took their case to the High Court, asking it to judge on the legality of the scheme. And now the High Court has made its ruling and they've sided with the government about the scheme as a whole. Lord Justice Lewis wrote this in his summary. The court has concluded that it is lawful for the government to make arrangements for relocating asylum seekers to Rwanda and for their asylum claims to be determined in Rwanda rather than in the United Kingdom. On the evidence before this court, the government has made arrangements with the government of Rwanda which are intended to ensure the asylum claims of people relocated to Rwanda are properly determined in Rwanda. The judges also ruled that the scheme was consistent with the 1951 Refugee Convention. Rishi Sunak had this reaction to the High Court ruling. Let's talk about Rwanda. You, you had a victory in the High Court today. Many people are asking now, when are the flights going to take off? I mean, they've been promised for months and months. Is it going to happen soon? Well, I welcome the decision of the court today. We've always maintained that our Rwanda policy is lawful. I'm pleased that was uh, confirmed today. And this is just one part of our plan to tackle illegal migration. Last week, I set out a very comprehensive approach to stopping the boats from coming to the UK. It's not going to be easy and we're not going to be able to do it overnight. But I'm confident that with the steps I laid out last week, we really can get to grips with illegal migration. Because I think what we all want to see and what I want to deliver is a system whereby if you come to the UK illegally, you will not have the right to stay and we will be able to return you to your own country if it's safe or a safe alternative like Rwanda. That's a common sense position, I think, of the vast majority of the British public. It's my position and that's what I want to deliver as Prime Minister. That was Rishi Sunak there, sort of channeling the common sense of the British public. There's a problem, though, um, because the Rwanda scheme doesn't seem to be particularly popular with that public. Now, this recent YouGov poll shows you why? So instead of everyone's lapping up this policy, 39% of Britons think that the best way to deal with small boat crossings is to make it easier for people to apply for asylum from overseas. And contrary to Sunak's claim there, that's the common sense view. Only 10% in contrast think that using the Rwanda scheme as a deterrent is the right way to tackle the issue. Now, returning to the High Court case. It didn't all go the government's way. The judges found that the Home Office hadn't properly processed the claims of the eight people who brought the case. Lord Justice Lewis said this, the Home Secretary must consider properly the circumstances of each individual claimant. The Home Secretary must decide if there is anything about each person's particular circumstances, which means that his asylum claim should be determined in the United Kingdom or whether there are other reasons why he should not be relocated to Rwanda. The Home Secretary has not properly considered the circumstances of the eight individual claimants whose cases we have considered. For that reason, the decisions in those cases will be set aside and their cases will be referred back to the Home Secretary for her to consider afresh. Now, in the House of Commons, Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper put the court's verdict on failings in the Home Office to Suella Braverman. The court concluded that the Home Office decision-making in each of the eight cases considered was so flawed and chaotic that those individual decisions have had to be quashed. 
literally cases of mixing up evidence and names in individual cases, so they were making decisions on the wrong people, confusion between teams in Glasgow and in Croydon about who was deciding what and which information should be shared, evidence of torture and trafficking not considered, and we know too that the Home Office attempted to send heavily pregnant women to Rwanda. Now, this is a damning indictment of the decision-making process in the Home Office, which we know isn't working because 98% of the small boat arrivals in the last 12 months have had no decision at all. And where government ministers seem to have effectively decided they are so incapable of getting a grip on the asylum system and taking asylum decisions effectively here in the UK, they want to pay a country halfway across the world to take those decisions for us. Yeah. I'm very disappointed by the response from the Shadow Home Secretary and more actually concerned that she's actually seeking to go behind what is a legitimate decision by our independent judiciary set out rigorously, exhaustively, thoroughly and suggests that this is still uh, an illegitimate scheme. We've seen through this uh, judgment that this is now lawful on several grounds. The judgment looked at the legislative authority. It looked very closely about the claims as to whether it breached Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the Article 14 of the ECHR, Article 31 of the Refugee Convention. It looked very closely about whether it was fair and uh, uh, or whether access to justice was respected. It looked very closely at other public law grounds. And on all of those claims, the Home Office won. The court concluded that it was lawful, that it is lawful for the government to make arrangements for relocating asylum seekers to Rwanda and for their asylum claims to be determined in Rwanda rather than the UK. And that judgment is a comprehensive analysis of the reasons why. The Honourable Randolay does ask about the eight individual cases. Uh, and we have we accept the judgment of the court on those individual cases. We have already taken steps to strengthen the case working process, including by revising the information and the guidance given to individuals during their assessment for relocation. But we've been clear throughout that no one will be relocated if it is unsafe for them, and support is offered to individuals throughout the process to ensure that it is fair. It's quite an interesting ruling. So they're sort of saying, in the case of these eight asylum seekers who you tried to send to Rwanda, you, it, it was right that those were stopped because you didn't deal with those eight cases properly. But in principle, you could send people to Rwanda. So you can send people to Rwanda if you get a little bit better at your jobs, I suppose, is, is, is potentially um, the import of this. We should look, though, how likely is it that the scheme will ever actually relocate anyone to Rwanda? Human rights lawyer Adam Wagner tweeted this. There will probably be appeals to the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court after that, and potentially to the European Court of Human Rights after that, unless the government manages to operate the scheme. In the meantime, I can't see those cases being resolved before the next election. As it often happens with these court cases, you can appeal them and it often takes quite a while. He goes on, if the domestic appeals are resolved by the next election, which is possible, and if the government ignores the European court, it rules the scheme is lawful. The flights will still be subject to individual legal challenges along the lines of deportation flights. And he says, ultimately, the government benefits more from Schrodinger Rwanda scheme, a beautiful idea thwarted by lefty lawyers and pesky judges than an actual functioning Rwanda scheme. 
That's perhaps small comfort, though, to asylum seekers who will be left in painful limbo until the Tories are out of government. Beth Gardner-Smith is CEO of Safe Passage International. She said this about the ruling. Today's decision is deeply disappointing, and our thoughts are with all those who are at risk of deportation under this cruel policy, as well as being immoral. This plan won't work in practice to deter people from making dangerous journeys across the channel, as we have seen this year. Instead, it will inflict huge misery and suffering on refugees who have already experienced significant trauma. Ash, what do you make of this? Government seem relatively pleased. I mean, I suppose the headline from the High Court case is it is legal to send people to um, Rwanda before, well, to have their claim assessed there. At the same time, you're still supposed to deal with their claim on a sort of case-by-case basis. It doesn't seem like they can just shove a lot of people on a plane. What does this mean, sort of in practical terms, this development? What this indicates is that unless there's new legislation brought in through Parliament to make it illegal on principle to have offshore processing of asylum claims, you're not going to have a court ruling against the principle of processing asylum claims in that way. But what the implication is, is that courts will make it really difficult on a case-by-case basis to have enough people filling up a flight for it to even take off. And rightly so. Many of the people who were scheduled to be on that flight to Rwanda were victims of human trafficking, victims of torture, deeply traumatised people who also had a claim to have you know, have have their applications processed here in the UK. And that's the thing, which is that the Rwanda deportation flights, is, is what they actually are, are trying to deal with a non-existent problem. It's trying to say, well, the problem is a lack of deterrence. If you treated people in a worse way, um, you'd, you'd stop people making small boats crossings or, or irregular crossings of other kinds. The fact is, is that people are only making these kinds of crossings because there aren't safe and legal routes which are open to people who aren't from a very small handful of countries, Um, Afghanistan, Hong Kong, Ukraine, and even for people from some of those countries, particularly Afghanistan, because the resettlement scheme has been so slow and just really inefficient. People have been forced into taking matters into their own hands and making these small boat crossings. Afghans make up, I believe, the second most common nationality on small boat crossings. So that would be what would actually deal with the problem. The the idea of deterrence is is a total non sequitur. It's truly, I think, about the spectacle of nastiness. But you know, it's an expensive scheme. It's not going to be one that's going to be looked on too kindly by the courts on an individual case-by-case basis. You wonder if this is going to be where the Conservative Party wants to spend their political capital when we're in a cost-of-living crisis where the government are also saying, OK, well, we can't do this. We can't support you in this way. No, we're not going to increase uh, pay for nurses. No, we're not going to... Um, we're going to pull back energy bill support from April. Splashing out on, you know... Upwards of three hundred thousand pounds, you know, per individual is not going to go down well. Let's go on to our next story. The Tories are desperate to blame problems in the NHS on striking nurses and ambulance drivers, but NHS users aren't buying it. Check out this interaction between the mother of a young patient and health secretary, Steve Barclay. Now being worked for bone, you know, and actually the level of care they provide is amazing, but. They're not being able to provide it in the way they want to provide it because the resourcing is not there, you know. Like I said, on Monday we were due to be in 
and the number of people coming through the door is too many and it's not fair to blame it on the pandemic anymore is it because actually we had problems in the NHS before we went into the pandemic we were short of doctors we were short of beds going into the pandemic so I think it's really wrong to, to blame it on the pandemic and actually the damage that you're doing to to families like myself is terrible because it was agony for us as a family waiting for that call and preparing our children for their sister and her hospital visit to then for then it to be cancelled and I know you look and we're all numbers but actually we people waiting for of care course, of course. Well, and, myself, yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely. So, and I think this problem with beds it's, a lot of it's the health and social care, isn't it? We have people that can't get into health and social care and are taking up beds. So until you as a government prioritise health and social care, we're not going to free up the, the already limited number of yeah. beds. And I want to reiterate, the staff are absolutely incredible. We're so lucky as a nation to have this NHS. You know, it was in our 2012 Olympic Opening Games. That's how proud we are. I feel like we criticise it all the time. I think what? that clip shows it, you know obviously this is just one clip but actually the polling backs this up which is that people are not in any mood to blame nurses for the crisis in the nhs because everyone knows nurses and they know that they're very hard-working people so uh, the tories seem to have taken as their sort of big opponent this group of people nurses they want these high pay rises they're a greedy bunch of lazy sods who need to work a bit harder this, I mean, you can maybe make that up about this some abstract group of people that no one has ever met. Like, I mean, they've got a better chance with train drivers. Less people have met train drivers than they have nurses. They're still struggling with the train drivers because, I mean, it's, it's not a good argument that they're trying to make. But with the nurses, it's just, it's it's a non-starter. Everyone knows nurses. Everyone has been in hospital and see, seen how hard they work. Everyone thinks they need to get paid more money. And so it's not a surprise that when the, the health secretary walks around the hospital, People don't take particularly kindly to him and they see him as the problem and why their operations or the operations of their children were cancelled and not some nurses who don't want a pay cut this winter. People do put the responsibility squarely on the health secretary as well they should. I mean, but even before the ambulance workers and nurses strike were, were even on the cards, what you had was an enormously long waiting list. You had reports emerging of people who were dying in ambulances outside hospitals. Dangerously long waits for ambulances if they were able to get one at all. Lots of people were being instructed to make their own way to hospital, even if it was quite dangerous to do so. And also just like a, a general sense that, you know, when you were in a hospital or you're receiving care, that people were overstretched overworked, underpaid, undervalued, and that does have an impact on the on the quality of care that you receive. So people have, have, have experienced this for quite some time now, and it's been a, a crisis which has been many years in the making. Never forget that the purpose of the Lansley reforms was to make the NHS more efficient. I don't think that anyone could say hand on heart that the NHS has become more efficient over the course of the last 10, 12 years. What instead we've seen are waiting lists, long ambulance waiting times, worse patient outcomes, lower job satisfaction for uh, NHS staff, and also um, less staff retention overall. People are leaving the NHS because it's just not a good place to, to work anymore. And there's no one responsible for that other than the Conservative Party. And I think that one of the things that's interesting is that I think in terms of public opinion, and I also think in terms of some of the media narratives, 
the Conservatives are finally being treated like an incumbent government. They're finally being treated like the government who's been in charge all this time and not just, you know, oh, we magically reinvented ourselves after we defenestrated the last leader who we decided that we didn't like anymore. And I think that that's something which is really starting to cut through and, and filter down into the popular consciousness. And that's what accounts for, for encounters such as these. Obviously, this will be an ongoing story throughout the week. Nurses and ambulance workers on strike this week. We'll be talking about it as it develops. Next story. Elon Musk looks set to end his short and chaotic reign as CEO of Twitter. The billionaire tweeted this on Sunday. Should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. 17 million people have voted. Now you've got a, you know, the guy has a following and 57.5% have voted yes. 42.5% have voted no. So if Elon Musk was telling the truth, when he said he will abide by the results of this poll, he will be standing down as CEO of Twitter. Now, most of his time as CEO has been pretty chaotic. It hasn't gone very well. Just last week, um, he courted controversy after he suspended a bunch of accounts of newspaper journalists who tend to follow Twitter. That was related to an account which shows the location of his private jet, which is publicly available information. Elon Musk sort of seems to have a, a policy which is if you do anything which annoys me or which makes me look bad, I'll throw you off my platform because I spent £44 billion on it. It doesn't seem to be much more logic than that. He also said this weekend that he was going to kick off anyone who linked to other social media platforms, which I think they had to... They, he didn't just say this was a plan for the future, they sort of announced this big policy change. And then I think they had to step back and do a U-turn because they realized it'd probably be against competition law. Ash, how significant would this be if Elon Musk does stand down? Obviously, he's that wouldn't be him losing control because he's still going to be the owner of Twitter. He still gets to pick the CEO. He wouldn't have done that poll if he didn't want to stand down anyway. And getting a new CEO is essentially saying, look, I'm going to take a step back. I'm still going to have all the power, but I'm going to give the day-to-day -day management to someone else of my choosing. Does that mean that how significant so does that make this? So the one thing that I'd maybe say in terms of proceed with caution is that this is something which was floated as an idea from the very earlier stages of Elon Musk's takeover bid. So if you cast your mind back to the legal filings, basically Twitter took Elon Musk to court because he tried to back out of the purchase agreement and he kind of had to be dragged kicking and screaming into upholding the terms of the contract that he himself signed. One of the things that was in those court filings was that it had been suggested that Elon Musk would be CEO for a short period of time, then he would step back, let someone else take over and he would just continue being owner. Now, I'm not saying that means that, oh, this was the plan all along, but I think that he's someone who goes, well, I'm just going to see how this plays out, move fast, break things, see what I want to do in the future. And what's abundantly clear is that his strategy for Twitter so far, which has been gut aspects of the team who are, you know, absolutely integral to Twitter function, both as a platform and also as a business, has, has not gone well for him. The revival of suspended accounts, including fascist, far-right, neo-Nazi, racist, harassing accounts, it's been something which has alienated a lot of what are called Twitter's power users. So, 
the small number of people who use Twitter a lot and also generate high engagement content. And also the idea of paying for verification, um, again, has been, been alienating that group of users. So what I think he's been trying to play this game of going, okay, free speech is back, everyone can do what they want and attracts back suspended accounts, the people who are actually driving traffic on Twitter are, are, are having none of it. They're, they're quite alienated by some of this behavior. Another thing which has been suggested is me and you, Michael, we were watching the World Cup at home like a, like a bunch of losers, whereas Elon Musk and Jared Kushner were at Qatar itself. And it's been suggested that part of the nature of those conversations were with Twitter's Saudi and Qatari stakeholders who hold the most significant stakes in Twitter after Elon Musk. And they were like, absolutely, fuck this. You are devaluing our investment. What are you doing? We don't like this one bit. So that might have been something that has has hastened this decision. But I think that that's some of the kind of structural reasons behind what's going on. But you also have to to realize that I think that there is almost a, a neurotic psychodrama at play here, which is Elon Musk is incredibly vain and has such perilously thin skin. He's a Twitter addict. He craves validation. He wants to be seen as a kind of transgressive shit poster who people find authentically funny. And of course, nobody does. What he has is, you know, a bunch of sycophants, which include, you know, kind of, I want to be rich just like you, sir. And then also right-wing influencers who have identified him as someone who either shares their ideological commitments or is a useful vehicle for them. But he has never got on that kind of you know, real backslapping, yeah, that's a good post kind of response that he clearly deeply craves. And so I think that he's he's locked into this, you know, really weird relationship with this platform where if he can't have it, he'll he'll have to kill it. But he also can't kill it because he can't live without it. I think it would make a beautiful and weird modernist ballet if anyone wants to stage it one day. This maybe like a you know, you're not supposed to get high off your own supply. Like if you're a drug dealer and you take the drugs that you're selling, it's not going to go particularly well. Do you think maybe a poster cannot be the day-to-day manager of Twitter? Because there's just sort of some yeah, conflict of interest. It means it's never going to work. If you are a poster and you also try and run the company on a day-to-day level, you're just constantly going to be shifting the rules so that your tweets perform better and people be less mean to you, which seems to be what's going You know, he had grand visions for the, for the public square I mean, he's now ended up just banning people when they say where his plane is or kicking people off when they mention any other social media site. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right. It is a, you know, the best uh, lesson in don't get high for your own supply since Scarface. You know, it's kind of a first as tragedy and then as fast kind of thing. But I think this also tells you something serious about what become public utility? So, of course, you know, Twitter starts out in private enterprise and it's not got as many active users as platforms like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. But because it is a text-based social media platform, it has managed to wield a huge amount of influence in terms of the rest of media in a way that Instagram and Facebook and TikTok really haven't. There's a reason why Every policy advisor, every journalist, every columnist, every producer, every presenter, every editor is on Twitter. So even if you're not somebody who is an active user of Twitter, the media that you're consuming is 
deeply shaped by it. And I think that that's why, you know, what rules is the space governed by? That's why it's so contentious. And I think it's it's an important thing to think about. It's not just something that you can sideline or, or, or push out of frame. And so I think when something plays such an important role in terms of injecting narrative and content and stories into the public information bloodstream, the question all of us have to ask ourselves is, do you want some mega divorced billionaire being in control of what happens? Because, you know, maybe it's not Elon Musk, maybe the mega divorced you know, billionaire is Jeff Bezos, who seems to be in some ways, you know, less ideological, if not, if not less vain. No, no, you wouldn't want that. So I think there's got to be some kind of conversation about, you know, democratic control, stewardship and ownership of social media platforms because they've become so key to the shaping of our information universe. Back to the World Cup. During commentary on the World Cup final in Qatar, Gary Neville made this brutal swipe at the UK government. It's abhorrent and we should detest low pay. We should detest poor accommodation and poor working conditions. And that is something that we can never, ever accept in this region or in any region. And it is just worth mentioning that we've got a current government in our country who are demonising rail workers, ambulance workers and terrifyingly nurses. So in our country, we've got to look at workers' rights. But certainly when football goes now, we have to make sure we pick up on workers' rights wherever it goes because people have got to be equal and they've got to be treated equal. We can't have people being paid an absolute pittance to work. We can't have people in accommodation, which is unsavoury and disgusting. We can't have that. That shouldn't happen here with the wealth that exists, but it shouldn't happen in our country that our nurses are having to fight for an extra pound or an extra two pounds either. So a version of that video went viral after it was tweeted, this is the surprising bit, by a Tory MP. Why was he tweeting a, a criticism of his government? Well, this is Lee Anderson. Another party political broadcast by a millionaire. Looks like ITV is on my band list now. Talk about football, Gary, and keep your nose out of politics. You don't know what you're talking about. That clip uploaded by the Tory MP has had 2.9 million views. I'm not sure that's the effect he was hoping for. Ash, what did you make of that from Gary Neville? Some people saying, how dare he compare workers' rights in Britain to workers' rights in Qatar? Obviously, there is a bit of a difference, but I suppose is the principle the same? I think that the principle is the same. And of course, you have to be wary of of collapsing really important differences. But you do have people who are working in, you know, hyper exploitable environments right here in the UK. I mean, you don't just have to talk about, you know, ambulance workers or nurses who, of course, are fighting over paying conditions. But if you look at the conditions that garment manufacturers in Leicester who are making the clothes which become part of you know the fast fashion economy boohoo pretty little thing things like that it's you know sub-minimum wage in horrendous working conditions because many of these workers are migrant workers that vulnerability is exploited by unscrupulous employers in order to keep treating them poorly and extract the maximum possible profit there are also ways in which the UK is really, you know, bound up with working conditions in other countries because, you know, when you rely on on globalized supply chains, one of the things that you do is you create a well. I can't see it, so I'm not responsible for for how those workers are being treated. There was a news story that came out, I believe it was the Guardian today, which described 
conditions in a Thai clothing factory who are making the clothes which are then sold at Tesco's. It is, you know, effectively an indentured labor sweatshop and conditions were so awful. And I'm just going to do a little trigger warning here for mention of sexual violence. A seven-year-old child was raped while her mother worked. We're talking about that level of poverty, of vulnerability, of exploitation. And those are the clothes which are being sold right here in the UK. So I don't think it's a case of saying, you know, well, who are we to criticize conditions in Qatar? Because, you know, absolutely no country has got a record with can hold their head up high. It's about saying, let this conversation become the beginning of a much broader interrogation and confrontation of exploitative working practices, which you don't just see in Qatar, which you do see here, which you do see in the supply chains, which lead to the products being sold in UK shops. So I actually think that Gary Neville could have gone further, but I think it was a good point. I think it was it was decently made, and I think that he was entirely within his rights to make it. What do you think of the broader, because I mean, there was a sort of, a longer speech he gave. And I think the beginning of it, he was sort of suggesting that it being in Qatar ended up being, you know, a reasonable thing. Obviously, yes, they've got their problems and it's good that they were called out. But, you know, who hasn't got their problems and he's pointing to the UK government. I mean, we, we talked about this, I remember, before the World Cup. And I was pretty clear, by the end of the World Cup, this is going to be considered a success. If you look at Russia beforehand, mm. if you look at all of these sporting events at the beginning of them, you get all of this, oh, should it be there? There's all of these political problems. By the end of it, everyone's like, God, wasn't that brilliant? Exactly mm. that has happened this time around. What do you think about it? I mean, uh, it does seem there have been some advantages to having the World Cup in the Middle East. I've sort of seen people on Twitter saying there's lots more people from the global south there than if it were held in North America or Europe because it's easier to get a visa to Qatar. There's a distance thing as well. You had the first African team get to the semifinals in the shape of Morocco. Then yesterday, we had this you know, huge Ferrari because Messi, the emir of Qatar, put uh, some sort of shawl on Messi, which lots of people said, this is an outrage. They're putting this Arabic shawl on Messi and ruining the great moment. And then lots of people sort of reacting to that by saying that was a bit racist and weird. I mean, what's your what's your sort of step back, all round take on on the whole World Cup in Qatar? Should people have boycotted it? Is it actually quite good that there's now been a World Cup in the Middle East? Or what's the what's your take? Okay, all right. So first thing is that you were totally right that this was only ever going to be considered a success. And it won't be until there is some kind of, you know, egregiously awful act of aggression or crime against humanity that people will be like, hey, don't you think it was kind of fucked up that Qatar was able to host a World Cup? And that's that's been uh, FIFA's playbook from the very beginning. I mean, Qatar and Russia have not been the first states who wanted to use the World Cup in order to launder their own image. I mean, Argentina in 1978, I believe, that was still under a military dictatorship. The stadiums were only, you know, a, a short walk away from the headquarters where people were being detained and tortured. So this has been something which is, you know, written through the DNA of modern FIFA. And it's something which, you know, long predates this particular crop of leadership. This isn't about saying, okay, well, football can only belong to North American or European countries. I actually think that what FIFA should do 
I mean, if it was an entirely different organization, perhaps FIFA would do, is that you would have some conditions attached to hosting a World Cup. So you would say, okay, the conditions are that there are these labor standards. Otherwise, you will have the ability to host the World Cup taken from you and we will find your your domestic footballing league, right? That could be one way of doing it. That could be another, which is, okay, the, this is the sort of, you know, base level of uh, civil liberties which are necessary for you to host a World Cup so we can, you know, ensure the safety of, you know, fans and reporters who who, who are going to descend en masse. These are all things that FIFA could use. They're not inconsiderable power to do, but they don't because you have a corrupt leadership who are more interested in taking bribes than they are in thinking about how football can genuinely be a part of, you know, a global mechanism uh, towards like a, a slightly better world slightly better record in human rights but fifa don't do i don't think this is going to be the last time that a country is called to host a world cup and we'll be like wait what the fuck is going on but i and i think that we're going to be stuck having this conversation um again and again when it comes to the world of sports and the worst thing i think you can do is have it in isolation about sports it's one of the things i said um at the beginning of this tournament which is if you're going to start talking about qatar holding the world cup you're also going to have to start talking about, you know, the Qatari sovereign wealth fund buying up huge swathes of, you know, the London property market. You're going to have to think about, you know, the connections between our own military and the Qatari military. You're going to have to think about the, you know, quantity of, of military hardware that we're selling to them. Football and sport makes makes these things visible because what it does is that it surfaces money from this kind of subterranean world of exchange and it presents it to us in the form of spectacles. Of course, that's when we all start talking about it. But FIFA have only followed where the money already was. And that's got to be the thing that like, you point out as you go, okay, where is the oligarch wealth coming from? Because I guarantee it, they're going to be next to hold a World Cup. Absolutely guarantee it. Final story of the evening. Jeremy Clarkson published a piece on Meghan Markle in The Sun this week. It's pretty disgusting. So he wrote this. I hate Meghan Markle, not like I hate Nicola Sturgeon or Rose West, the serial killer. I hate her on a cellular level. At night, I'm unable to sleep as I lie there grinding my teeth and dreaming of the day when she is made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowds chant shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. Everyone who's my age thinks the same way. Now, Ash, we wouldn't normally, you know, Jeremy Clarkson has said something attention-grabbing and vile about a woman. We wouldn't normally sort of devote a segment to that. But this one, I think, has, well, I mean, it's become a big story because it's so vile. I think it kind of is so vile, it can't really be ignored. He's imagining this woman who he doesn't know being made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while people shout shame and throw lumps of excrement at her. What it is is that I think it's a it's a reference to the scene in Game of Thrones when Cersei is made to, you know, do the shame parade naked through the streets of King's Landing. But it also shows you the kind of horrible, twisted eroticism of the hatred which is lobbed at Meghan Markle. This was actually something that I was discussing a little bit with Richard Seymour in a recent downstream interview that we did about Twitter. And we were talking a bit about some of the hatred that I get. And it's just like, well, why is it so eroticized? Why is it so much about sex and sexual humiliation? And, And one of the things that he was saying is that like, you know, that's kind of the thing which is like, 
unlocked by this like horrible panopticon of like media coverage and image. And particularly when you've got a, a woman of color like Meghan Markle, who is absolutely, you know, stunning. She's a beautiful woman, just undeniably. And yet her race and her gender are being used as as the reasons to throw hate upon her to say that she lacks class and dignity that she's straight out of Compton that she's conniving and manipulative uh, you know she's the puppet master while Prince Harry you know nearly dances for her delectation and delight there's already this sort of strange double-edgedness to it which is she's clearly beautiful you can't stop thinking about her whether that's because of you know fascination or admiration or a kind of you know, like pathological fixation. And it also doesn't escape me that like many of these men are, you know, horrible chauvinistic boors themselves who I think are, are deeply threatened by women and, and have used sex as a means of, of demeaning women and, and try to put them in their place. So I think that that's what explains this horrible eroticism of making her parade naked, this desire to sexually humiliate her. Because I think on some level, Meghan Markle reminds Jeremy Clarkson of his own impotence. And I mean impotence in a figurative sense, a psychological sense. I've got no insight into the contents of Jeremy Clarkson's trousers, and thank goodness for that. But I think that that's why it's so weirdly sexualized. Yeah, I mean, I think it's gross. Um, his daughter also thinks it's gross. Um, this is Jeremy Clarkson's daughter. My views are and have always been clear when it comes to misogyny, bullying, and the treatment of women by the media. I want to make it very clear that I stand against everything that my dad wrote about Meghan Markle and I remain standing in support of those that are targeted with online hatred. Jeremy Clarkson now has come out and, what can I call this an apology? Not quite. He said this, Oh dear, I've rather put my foot in it. In a column I wrote about Meghan, I made a clumsy reference to a scene in Game of Thrones and this has gone down badly with a great many people. I'm horrified to have caused so much hurt and I shall be more careful in future. Um, Ash, do you believe that Jeremy Clarkson is genuinely horrified to have caused hurt? Is that an emotion you sort of uh, find plausible? No, and he sort of does this thing. He did the same thing when he said the N-word. You know, there were all sorts of racial slurs and kind of like nudge-nudge, wink-wink, misogynistic and homophobic comments on Top Gear all the time. And he always does the thing of like, oh, I'm just a clumsy oaf who doesn't know how to navigate this complicated world of political correctness. Oh, aren't I just like your dad? That's been his way of, of laundering or making palatable like quite horrendous forms of bigotry throughout his career. So he's just, he's playing a very old song here. And I don't think it's genuinely contrite at all. And the thing about Jeremy Clarkson is that he's just so, so utterly charmless. And he's someone who's become famous, I think, not because he he is particularly witty or intelligent or kind or insightful, He's someone who's become famous because what he does is he creates permission for other people to be their worst selves, to hold being your worst self, your most unreconstructed self, your most bigoted and boorish self, as though it's a kind of virtue. And that's the kind of investment that people have in him. And so he's just he's just sticking to that same songbook. 
I really can't stand Jeremy Clarkson, but I would rather gouge out my own eyes than see him paraded naked. I've got to say that. Ash, you make me my best self. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much for putting up with my croakiest self, Michael. Hopefully I'll sound normal in time for the new year. Yeah, we sort of rushed through tonight's show. I think we might both have to sort of go away and now have the coughing fits we've been um, suppressing for the past 48 minutes. But we will be back on Wednesday. Britain's strike wave is ramping up this week. Loads of different people on strikes. So we'll be talking about that on Wednesday and on Friday, I am sure. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.